0: Let's turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. If Jesus were to personally walk right into our church this morning and begin to build it in his image, let's say he took over, what would our church look like? How would he design it? What would he change? Beloved, Jesus is the one who is building our church. And so we have specific answers, very specific answers in the Bible to every one of those questions. Whether or not we will be the church personally, Moundsville Baptist Church, whether we will be the church God has graciously put us in Christ His Son to be is not a matter of what we are able to accomplish It is not a matter of our personal plans or desires. It is a matter of submission in our hearts to the clearly revealed will of God. And so in Ephesians, the first three chapters are the indicatives of the gospel. Again, what is true because God has accomplished it in Christ and applies it through His Spirit to us. He has created us by grace through faith to be His church In the world, His one people on the earth, through which He will make His great wisdom and redemption known and proclaimed to the entire cosmos. The last three chapters of Ephesians are the imperatives of the gospel. The commands which, when obeyed, make the church accomplish the purpose God revealed it had and that He gave to it in the first three chapters. So what does He want us to be like? What does He want us to do In light of all that He has already done for us. That's the question the last three chapters of Ephesians, I want to say uniquely address. God shapes our lives so that how we act as believers, as His children, and how we even structure ourselves and behave as the church, display His manifold wisdom in Christ. We are called to walk worthily, Of God's gracious calling, which is achieved mainly by maintaining the oneness in which and for which we have been created. So let me pray, and we'll begin. Our Father, we praise You for this passage of Your Word. I ask, Lord, that You would help me preach clearly, and that You would enable everyone to listen and to hear. So, Father, have grace on all of us. I ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We read the first three verses of Ephesians 4. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul's prayer, we looked at it last week in 3:14 to 21, isn't just a random blessing because he's excited that he's been recounting what God has done. Paul's prayer is very deliberate. It stands in God's word. It's foundational for the church as this in-time fulfillment body of Christ in this world in all times and in all places it flows that prayer out of Paul's revelation of the mystery of Christ and what follows here then if that's the case and it is is absolutely foundational for the church for the church and always will be since it is the natural result the things Paul is now going to say are the natural result of God's accomplishment through Christ in the gospel in the church the word therefore in 41 frames these next verses then in the cosmic purpose of god for this church this is why he's created it this is how his purpose for it is played out it isn't merely wishful thinking this isn't a suggestion for how we might act or behave as the church what the last 3 chapters of ephesians are going to do primarily is help us see in concrete detail what walking worthy of this calling looks like. So beginning here then, if you go back to chapter 3 verse 10, beginning here in four one, is how the wisdom of God gets displayed by the church. We proclaim it in our message of the unsearchable riches of Christ, but we also display it in our character and growth into what He has made us. In Christ Jesus, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He's loved us and chosen us and forgiven us, redeemed us, sealed us, made us a part of His Son's body in this world to be recipients and proclaimers of God's magnificent grace in His Son Jesus is our calling. And so for the rest of our lives, all we are doing really is growing up together together into a fuller realization of this grace-given identity. That's what walking worthy of this calling looks like. And the worthy walk is grounded foundationally on unity, on oneness. Think back to 2.11 to 3.6 and how crucial the fact that there are no longer any differences or distinctions among God's people since this in particular will magnify the wisdom of God that there's no longer any division, that God has one people and always has, that He's been working towards and working for, and the expanse of His love and His grace in that is magnified and proclaimed for sinners. So what are the primary character traits of those people, of this one new man that God has created in Christ Jesus? Well, it's very unremarkable. Humility, gentleness, patience... And a willingness to bear with one another in love. And lastly, eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in verses 2 and 3. Now, we need to ask, why are those things so indicative of this calling? How do humility, gentleness, patience, endurance with one another, and an eagerness to maintain... Again, that word is so important... So I'm emphasizing it every time I say it. Maintain this grace-given unity and accomplish the task of walking worthy of God's calling. How do these things in these first three verses serve that mighty purpose? Is there any list that so perfectly embodies who Jesus is for us? Especially as He walked among us on the earth. After all, this one new man is His body. It's going to look like Jesus. Everything in Ephesians that Paul is instructing the church to be is cruciformed. It's Jesus-shaped. Is there any list that better describes his posture towards us as sinners, all who were without God, without hope, who were strangers and aliens that were too far away from God because of their sin to ever get close to him on their own? Jesus emptied himself of all he could have used to his advantage in this world even though his identity was royal and divine and holy. So we must empty ourselves of all we could use to our advantage here in the church and out in the world, even though we have such a high calling and a royal and holy identity, even though God has made us his very own children. Because how did Jesus do that, beloved pure Grace. So, there's how did Jesus make us into that? Pure grace. Right? So, there's foundational to the church's existence and identity as what God has called us to be. Is that there is nothing to brag about when you're a Christian. Nothing. Nothing to brag about. We are all the recipients of grace. If we're in Christ, it's because of grace. Grace is because God had mercy on us while we were sinners. So humility isn't just a good character trait. It is foundational to our calling as the church. If we're going to do what 310 said we're supposed to do. Humility. Jesus was also gentle. Prophesied of him in Isaiah. He wouldn't break bruised reeds. He wouldn't quench smoldering wicks. There was nothing heavy-handed or sneaky or manipulative in how Jesus went about fulfilling God's calling on Him. So there must never be such things among us. And Jesus was literally the epitome of patience as He bore with and put up with our unbelief and our doubt and rejection and rebellion every day when He was with us and continues even now not to throw His hands up in the air at us and abandon us. Instead, He bears with us in love, not in mere toleration. That we see that Jesus doesn't just put up with us, and therefore He would not have us treat each other that way. Bearing with one another in love, in verse 2, not in annoyance. God does not call us in the gospel to putting up with people, but to loving them. Because what Jesus accomplished for us was so much more than a simple legal transaction where the affections don't matter. Right? When you pay off a loan, the bank doesn't come and give you a hug. Right? Jesus wanted more than just the legal setting right of things between God and us and between one another. Everything Jesus did, everything Jesus bore with us, were for the love of his children. And how eager was Jesus to build his one true church. Jesus does the work of building the church. How eager was he to accomplish that which would bring eternal peace between us and God. He prayed in the face of a horrific death. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's how serious Jesus was about this, and he meant every word of that. Jesus gave up his life to accomplish the Father's purpose. Now that we are in Christ, now that we are saved and sealed, we aren't doing this so that God will make us his children, but because we are his children. His requirement here in the text that we live like Jesus is nothing compared to what was required of him. Right? Jesus had to condescend. You and I just need to wake up, right? You and I don't condescend to people when we bear with them in love. We're dying to this idea that we shouldn't have to do that. And let's talk about gentleness for a moment. This is That's a forgotten calling in the church. There is zero need for heavy-handedness in Christ's church did you know that if we find that everything we need to accomplish in the church comes with great difficulty and so we have to work and scheme and maneuver and push to get our way to accomplish anything we don't need to pray that God would give us unity in that because we're disobeying him We need to realize that it's at least possible. It is at least possible. And if a church can't even ask that, then it is far from its purpose and calling. We need to realize it's at least possible that all the programs and the structures and the traditions are hurting unity. Because to maintain them, it requires a fight. To maintain them, it can't be maintained with gentleness, right? We shouldn't be doing anything as a church that undermines our ability or our calling and command to be gentle with one another. Sit in on one church meeting of any kind and you will hear the groaning and bemoaning of how hard it is to do anything for fear that you won't step on someone's toes. And so gentleness, when it is practiced, is not for the sake of unity. It's for the sake of making sure people don't get upset. Do we realize this? That nothing we are called to do, or to be as the church requires force to make it happen. Nothing. If the things we want to happen require us to use force to accomplish, we need to recognize that we've passed into an area God is not pleased to work in. All can be accomplished as God intends for the church by being humble, gentle, patient, even lovingly so with others. And listen, all of us at one time or another, or maybe all the time, make it very hard to be patient with each other very hard but that's often because we're trying to maintain things other than unity and so the unity we have we have because nothing real gets addressed right nothing no real change happens no matter what a church tells a pastor right we want you to come in lead us help us get to the how about we change this uh no 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 how about we change this? Mm-mm, not that one. How about this? New? No. 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 So what we want you to do is just be a custodian of the traditions that we have. And if you do that, we love you, right? Our pastors are culpable in these things too, right? But the unity that Christ has called us to because we have it is not accomplished by us working towards it, but by us backing off and letting it be just maintaining it, not creating it. Church should not be that hard, beloved. It shouldn't be so hard. Right? If we were patient to let Christ build the church and not all be pushing and pushing and pushing to grow or to do whatever, beloved, then He's built. He promised to build it. He promised to build it. So if everybody just took their hands off, it might actually grow. Because then not everybody's in the way of what God is doing. What we are called to maintain in the church is not growth. Right? We aren't called to maintain that or to cause it. We're not called to maintain our traditions or our personal legacies. It is the unity of the Spirit that in the bond of peace that we are called as a church to maintain. And notice Paul says maintain unity, not create unity. Why not? I mean, it seems like you bring all these people in this thing and they don't agree and everybody has opinions and agendas, and so you're going to have to work to create unity. No, no, no. You're going to have to believe the Scriptures and trust that there already is unity, and we just need to maintain it. Because Jesus Christ has already accomplished our unity by shedding His blood for each and every single one of us at the cross. We are just called to maintain what Jesus built and created and accomplished. We're not called to make it into something. So we need to take ourselves and everything that we want church to be for us out of the way, beloved. This is not mine. This is not yours. This is not ours. We are maintenance. We are maintenance workers for the time God gives us on the earth, the church. We are not CEOs. We are not innovators. We are maintenance men. And the minute we take our eyes off of what Christ has done for us, and take achieving anything He has called us to accomplish into our own hands, we are killing unity. We kill it. We have everything we need for us in the Word of Christ. It's right here. Just listen to Him. You you can't improve on Jesus. The more us there is in this thing called the church, the farther from His purpose we will be. Right? All of us try to create the church in our image so that we like going there and there's nothing we don't like and nothing we're upset about. We already have unity. He just wants us not to mess it up. Our failure to see that. Like, how can you say that we have unity? Our failure to see it is because we lack faith in the sufficiency of the Word. We don't believe the Gospel. So we work to try and do what Christ has already done. And we get our hands in it, and we mess it up. The best example of how this works in real time is school lunch. you ever seen the food the kids get at school? Chicken? I don't know. Right? I mean, the the kids... My kids are sort of debutantes about their food. I will admit that. But they take pictures of their school lunch and bring it home. And I have to like tell them, you should be thankful and eat it, when I know that I would not touch it with a 10-foot pole. But... The, I mean, the, the government, the state saying, no, we'll take care of providing the food for the schools so it'll get mass produced and not be efficient and lowest common denominator. And yeah, that's, it's gonna, you're going to, you know, pineapple upside down beans and stuff like that and pork cutlet and fudge round. I don't know. Things like that. But we have everything we need right here. It's right here. You, you can build a movement that will turn the world upside down with the words in this book or I should say be a part of a movement because that's what the apostles did we are called to maintain this unity not create it because all we are doing all we're called all we're being called to do here is to maintain the purity of something that already exists it's already there and we should be eager to maintain it that, that when, when you, when we are commanded to have certain emotions, that is, that's powerful because we have to know you can't work up emotions in order to be obedient. If, if, when we're, I mean, if, do we ever think about this being commanded to love one another as God loves us, to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us? How do you accomplish that? So it's not just the act God commands, it's the attitude of the heart that God commands. If He just says, I want you to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, okay, but be eager to maintain it. Like, I, I have to feel a, a, a biblical eagerness to something. How do I work that up? We don't. Again, you, you, you put your hands on it and we'll mess it up. So you, when you read commands, you go to Christ. You don't look in the mirror and say, you've been commanded to do something. How do I do this? No, we run to Christ and say, I'm not eager to maintain unity. I'm eager to get what I want. I need your mercy. I need you to help me. I need you to soften me, God, and chisel me, God, and help me because I may be contributing to disunity in your church. Because I'm not eager to maintain what you've created, but what I want to create. So we we shouldn't have to argue and fight in the church. To do something Christ has commanded us to do. That should be a no-brainer. The minute it's clear in Scripture that something is someone's idea instead of the Word's idea, everybody should go, oh, then never mind. I'm sorry, I I didn't think that through, right? Instead, it just... And listen, there are things that hurt unity. There's also different kinds of unity. Unity. Some of the things that can split up a church or cause difficulty in a church come right from God's Word. There are some directions a church may need to go that will hurt surface level unity, right? That we just, we just get along. But the idea that we have to all get along and like each other and put up with each other, that's not the biblical view of unity. That's just getting along. We could accomplish that. What Christ has called us to is something He accomplished and gave to us precisely because we couldn't. So we need to know when we bump up against these imperatives now, yes, we're commanded to do them. We are obligated to obey. But they're flowing out of the gospel, which means if we could have done it on our own, there are no imperatives. You just go right to the commands. We can't do this on our own. We can't. The kind of unity we're called to maintain is a is an otherworldly unity that was granted to us. It's it's not the world doesn't have this anywhere. Right? It, it exists because of Christ and His Word for us. In this unity, personal agendas and demands they die because the glory of Christ outshines them all. It's not just false doctrine that threatens unity, beloved, and it most certainly does, but it's not just false doctrine that can hurt a church's true unity. If if we also let selfishness and self-centeredness fester in the name of preserving some kind of surface-level unity, we will destroy the true unity of the church that already exists precisely because of the truth we're called to maintain no matter what it does to surface level unity. Sometimes to maintain true unity, there must be conflict. And this is very convicting to me this week because I don't want conflict. Not anymore. I'd like to avoid it like the plague. That's not good. I, I had a sentence in my notes. I took it out because I didn't want to say it, but I guess I will say it because it, it lets you know how non-eager I am to f- have conflict. I had the line in there that sometimes you have to preach a church empty to preach it full. That's true. And I wish it wasn't. You know, sometimes it seems like that's my calling. To preach churches empty. That's a pretty good feeling. That's sarcasm. Sometimes to maintain true unity, there has to be conflict. And no, I'm not going to preach the church empty. All right, I'm not doing that anymore. I'll leave before that happens. Making sure everyone is happy, though, and nobody leaves in a tiff. That's not the goal of the church. Right? More often than not, the things we're doing or cling to or believe we have to have for our church to be the church are because we're eager to maintain our preferences, right? Then we are the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Most of the time, beloved, we lack unity because people are selfish and carnal and demanding. Not because we're being threatened from some outside force. It's because we're not dying to ourselves when Jesus himself is our peace beloved remember 2:14 where Jesus is there is peace which means we don't lack anything we need to have peace in the church even though it's filled with sinners doesn't mean there can't be peace doesn't mean every it's not that everybody has to be perfect for there to be peace no there there we don't lack what we need to have peace in the church what we lack is humility humility God's purpose for the church is undermined more often by the pride of its members than it is by the world look at verse 4 pick it up in verse 4 notice how, how serious he is about this there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one Lord one faith one baptism one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all See how many times you read the word one there? God's eternal purpose that He has realized in Jesus Christ. That purpose has a mission. To proclaim God's glorious wisdom in Christ. That's been demonstrated in His great salvation. Again, 3.10. And beloved, that one mission. So the purpose has a mission. The mission has one church. One body. One spirit. One hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's the basis of unity. That's the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit applies all of this in Christ. Right? The the, the unity of the Spirit. Look how unified God's purpose is for the church. Look at that. Look at what it's built on. Right, it stands or falls on oneness. It can't fulfill the mission, the purpose gives it, if it isn't one. Right. I mean, we we could, you know, go on a tangent here and talk about denominations, and and it's. I don't know how healthy that is. I mean, I used to think you know, in one sense, it it's probably good because then people can. Find a church that, that fits their personal convictions more. I suppose that's not horrible, but beloved, it. It, it, I mean, it is hard to talk about oneness when you're in a town of our size and there's what at least a dozen churches here, you know. And I'm not indicting all of them. I mean, we're, we're all a part of that. And I, but I mean, it, I, like, how did it get to that? You know, I mean, there's some things to study there, but it seems like the, the Bible's very serious about. If if, if you're going to do what I've called you to do, what i created you to do, there's going to be a level of humility that kills all the reasons you would divide unless it's a biblical reason to divide, right? Paul basically begs the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1 not to divide over baptism, and most of our church denominations are because of our different views on baptism. Brothers and sisters that baptize infants, brothers and sisters that don't. Right? Brothers and sisters that believe in baptismal regeneration, brothers and sisters that don't. Right? And so, we're dividing over the very thing, usually, the Bible tells us, no, not over that. And, and, and we've, we've like made that, we've almost deified that, that, you know, there, there's this conference, I, I've, I've been to it, I used to love it, I, seriously, I, I wouldn't go to it now if it was free, and it's not. It's called Together for the Gospel where all these guys of different denominations preach, and it's good preaching. Like, I don't... Right? Those guys... But, like, it, they ought to be honest and call it divided over baptism because they couldn't join each other's churches. So it just... It, I don't know the answer. Like, I don't know how we fix that. I just... I don't think it's good overall. Right? And, of course, there are reasons to say, no, we don't believe that. We won't teach that. Right? So, but again... It seems like humility was meant to be a buffer to that. Look look how unified God's purpose is for the church. Look, Look at what it's built on. It all stands or falls on oneness, right? One body, one spirit that seals and fills and guides that one body. One hope that belongs to this call. One hope in the church for salvation. Christ. One Lord. So Christ is the head of all things and has been given as that head to that body. One faith. We're all saved by grace through faith. The gift of God. We are built on this message of God's salvation. One baptism. We are all baptized into Christ through the Word in the water. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God has His fingerprints all over this enterprise, beloved. The unity of the church is found in, it's based on the unity and oneness of God. He is not divided. God is not divided. So, what keeps dividing His church? We are literally held together by the fact that God and His Son and His Spirit and His purpose and His church and our place in it are one. 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 And remember, the indicatives in chapters 1 through 3, the things that God has done, that's what accomplished all of this. So God doesn't ask us to create unity or oneness. He calls us to live in it because He has created it for us in Christ. we Why do we keep striving? What we need to do, what we need to do, is open our eyes and behold Christ for us in the gospel, which, if you'll remember, is precisely what Paul prays for, In 314 to 21, we don't naturally see what Christ very clearly puts in front of us. And so what a church needs to do is pray for God to do what Paul asked him to do almost 2000 years ago. Through the gospel, we need overcome by grace. We can't obey any of these things in our own willpower, in our own strength. We can't even be helped. We need overcome. By grace, through the gospel. Remember, it's through the gospel that Jesus created the church. And our unity, our oneness, then, is critical to that purpose. Because the church thing that Paul's writing about to Ephesus, it's going to spread. It's going to find its way to Europe and the rest of Asia and Northern Asia and the global South and North America, and it's just going to keep spreading. Therefore, it will constantly see people come and go, live and die. So how does it maintain the same thing over thousands of years when the people in it always change, right? And the places and the cultures in which the church exists always is changing. How do you maintain one thing, right? When not just times change, but people do all the time. Think about that for a minute. Just think about the implications of what we're being called to here in one through six. If the growth or success of the church was dependent on the skills and preferences and traditions of any one group of people or any one person, nothing could hold it together. Because first of all, people die. First of all, Jesus didn't make the apostles immortal. Right? Have you ever thought about that? They died like everybody else. So apparently, the church doesn't need certain men or personalities, no matter how valuable they are, to to sustain itself. It needs the truth to be sustained. That never changes. People and places always change. But Christ's calling is to oneness no matter where the church is and no matter who is in it. God doesn't leave the growth or the success or the identity or the unity of the church in our hands. These verses are the theological coordinates to maintain unity within this growing, increasingly diverse movement as it spreads out to the world from Ephesus. Paul is an apostle. True to that calling, what he's doing is ensuring here the theological integrity of the church through all generations. Paul is clarifying in Ephesians the boundaries of orthodoxy. This is what the church is and should always be and always proclaim and always believe in a packageable, reproducible form that will work regardless of culture or traditions or the skill sets of its members. Nobody, nobody is indispensable in the church of Jesus Christ. Nobody. The truth is indispensable in the church of Jesus Christ and only the truth. Each generation of the church then maintains the same thing. That's it. We make sure it doesn't get compromised by sin and selfishness and then we go to our Creator in joy and peace when our work in this is done and let the next generation pick up the maintenance. This Elevated way of talking for Paul not only conveys how significant the theology is in the passage, but also how inescapably foundational it is for the church in all places and at all times. Beloved, we must be careful and deliberate to maintain this unity. When unity is lacking, when the people in a church have gone sideways with one another, when the flame is going out, which COVID had a massive effect on us, on all churches. When oneness of vision and purpose is unclear, please try to hear what I'm saying. We don't need a pastor to give us a new vision and fresh ideas and then try to push them through at the expense of of whatever. No, no, no. We need to go back to God's word and to the things that have always worked to sustain a church. Less us, more Bible. Paul will describe those things next week in verses 11 through 16, God willing. But for that to happen, for what, everything I just said, we have to be humbled. Every single one of us. And listen, here's the thing. Okay, Nobody thinks that the things they want Are hurting unity None of us do None of us thinks that The things we want and would like to see None of us think those things cause problems Because we're not humble Everyone thinks Everybody, me included Everybody thinks they are right And their desires are more legitimate Or more biblical than the other person So it's okay to be divisive Because it's for everyone else's good That's a lack of humility. Nobody's vision is that clear. Certainly not mine. So we need to ask if we've gotten ahead of the Father and are now trying to squeeze unity out of the dry fruit of what we've built by our preferences and desires and traditions and methods. And if the unity that Paul calls for here cannot be maintained by the way we currently do things, then we have to change the way we currently do things, beloved. Or our talk of the Word being inerrant and infallible, and the only authority of faith and practice is a sham. A sham. The devil believes the Bible. That, that doesn't mean anything. So the DNA for the unity of church thrives in, it's already there it's in the truth that made us in the first place, flowing out of our identity, that we are one body and there is one spirit and one hope that belongs to our call and one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in in all, beloved, think of your own body for a minute, just think about your own body do you need to do anything to it to make it digest food for example Not naturally, right? Unless something is wrong, you and I are born with the ability naturally to digest our food. We don't say, oh, so I'm supposed to digest food, so I better go out and find a tool or a machine that will help me do that. We would only need to do that, again, if our body was disabled, if something was defective and we couldn't digest food. Beloved, Jesus Christ has not created a defective body. So if he says, I want you to have unity, it's because we have it. And if we, we if we inject, if we go find an appendage of some kind or a device because we've been called to unity, we're going to mess it up. The further we move away from the simplicity of the spiritual reality of the unity we already have, the more we insist on our own ways and means to accomplish anything that God has called us to do, the more we risk rendering the church completely ineffective at accomplishing the purpose God created it for. A body that has Christ as its head is going to function on its own very well unless we add ourselves and our ideas and agendas to something that was set up to function naturally just by abiding in His Word. We're built for growth already. We're built for multiplication already. We're built for unity. We're built for fruitfulness. We're built to proclaim the wisdom of God to the cosmos. Jesus doesn't need our input. We just add so many things. This should just be about that, our church. That's it. Well, I like this and so do I. I like a lot of things. I prefer a lot of things. That has no business and no bearing and no authority on being what Jesus Christ created me in Him to be. None. Notice that, look back at the last three chapters and see what we've come from, what created us, who we've been created in. Notice the singularity, the simplicity. We were called to one body and one spirit because we have one hope. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Just stay right there. The point is this. We don't need a ton of stuff going on to be the body. We don't need a lot of stuff going on to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We always think if we just get people together more, there will be unity. No, no, no. People are miserable. We stink at maintaining and creating unity. We don't have to do a lot to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the size of this, beloved, it's in Christ's hands. We can't concern ourselves with that. We can't. He's the builder. Making the church grow is on Jesus. What we need is hearts that are broken in love for one another and an unshakable sense of who we are and how we got here. And on the authority of God's Word, if we have that, we'll be fine. Everything God wants to do in Moundsville, He'll do it. Eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace manifests, beloved, in how we treat each other. It flows out of the increasing hope in the gospel that created us. It does not come from an appendage. It does not come from an addition. We need less of ourselves in the church. Saved people should be gracious people. So enough of all the undermining and complaining and griping and demanding and rivalry. Why do we do that to one another? Right. And maybe it's different, you know, I, I, I guess for the pastor, because you see things from a different perspective just by virtue of being the pastor. And, and I, I, I've said this, I think, like on Wins and Ice, but like I hear everything that's said. It, I, I, it gets back to me. I hear it. Somebody's gonna snitch. Alright? And that, that's, I'm not dogging that. I mean, like, I'm gonna hear it. I've, so, there might be things I don't know right now, but I guarantee you there's things that people that have said think I don't know, and I know them. Because they weren't said to me. <laughs> and listen, that's not, unfortunately, that's every church. Alright? It's not just the pastor that people normally have problems with. I mean, it's, it's, it's each other, right? We just, and so what we're doing like, like, don't, don't we see like all of us that like it's the same hamster wheel for like a hundred years? Just it's, just, it's it's like, whoa. unity maintenance is in our DNA as Christians, our born again DNA. It isn't injected from the outside. It's not maintained by our contributions to it. God gave this to us in our salvation. So, beloved, let us be the body. As individual members of it, let us each do our part to maintain it, not hurt it. Which really just boils down to our hearts, to our humility, gentleness, patience, willingness to bear with one another as long as we possibly can. Peace, as much as it depends on us, right? Each one of us ought to be eager for this. This shouldn't be a threat to anybody. If this kind of talk threatens you, you have your own agendas for the church and you need to repent. And you're going to get in the way if you don't. And there are a lot of things that we can do as human beings. Fleecing God's sheep is not one any of us should want to do. Each one of us ought to be eager for unity, right? More than us having to do something, that's just each of us being broken before the Word and willing to submit to it. Our our unity isn't seen best. Through the things we create, it's seen best in how we love one another because of our hope. And listen, it's not that if we've if it's been our idea that it's automatically destructive and divisive because it's our idea. That's not always the case at all. This, this doesn't mean you shut everything down and don't do anything. No, no, no. You identify what is keeping you from being obedient to Scripture, and you stop demanding it. That's our role in this. Notice here, there isn't one mention of doing anything to get to this unity other than dying to self. The eagerness to maintain it is a matter of character, of the heart. It's not a matter of ways and means because no matter what, we have the gospel. We have eternal life. Jesus will never let us go. Even when we struggle as a church to get it right, He's not letting us go. He's not going to abandon us or turn His back on us. We're safe unless we just outright reject His Word on purpose. But the power of the cross that saved us and made us what we are, that's where our power to be the church is found. In Him, not us, unity, beloved, oneness. But then in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's very powerful for him to say because he's quoting Psalm 68. How can he say, therefore, Psalm 68 that was written thousands of years before this was written because the Bible says Ephesians 4. Right? That's very Pauline to do. Among this supernatural, divinely given unity in the body, there is diversity, right? Let me speed up here. Christ has apportioned grace to each one of us, each one of us in the body for the sake of the whole body. So, the victorious Christ, what Paul is saying here, has literally given each one of us grace that we might all, as one, accomplish this purpose, to make His manifold wisdom in salvation through Jesus Christ known. Make it known, Him known in our message, and by our character. And even the gifts that we've been given are the result of His grace for that purpose, not for our own spiritual fulfillment. That is not why you and I have spiritual gifts. We don't have gifts so that we feel like we have a place to fit in or a contribution to make. That's how people become demanding rather than humble. They turn God's grace into a tool to wield against others. I have this gift, and if you don't let me do this, you are hindering me, prohibiting me. And it's amazing what we will call a spiritual gift. It's amazing. My my spiritual gift is um running committees. Oh, that's cool. I can't find it in the text, but it must be there somewhere. That's weird that your spiritual gift goes right with what your personal desires are. That's cool. So... Jesus didn't shoot us in the foot to maintain unity by giving each one of us gifts, right? That's not, that's not what he was doing. God didn't gift each of us grace so that we'd have 150 agendas for the church that must be listened to and respected. And he gifted each one of us with grace so that we would get on the same page for the sake of the gospel so that grace wouldn't, would, would, filter down into every single thing we do. None of us has the right to hold the church hostage for our own sakes or our own service. None of us. When Jesus ascended victoriously to the Father's right hand, He distributed gifts to His people for all time. Paul quotes Psalm 68 to proclaim that, a psalm referencing the day when God would scatter His enemies. Only when Paul quotes this, do you know what's amazing? Paul changes the words of Psalm 68:18. Now remember, real quick, back in chapter 3, verse 4, do you remember what Paul said? That he's been given unique insight into the mystery of Christ? Here's an example of what he's talking about. He can change the words of Psalms and not be doing injustice to the text. When Paul changes the words of Psalm 68:18, so that the ascending one is distributing gifts in Ephesians 4, not receiving them as he is in Psalm 68, We're learning from Paul how to properly read the Old Testament in light of Christ and his accomplishment of God's purposes. Because there's always been this oneness in God's purpose. Paul interprets the Old Testament in light of the victory of Christ and the fulfillment that has come as evidence of his reign over all things. I want to try to point that out every time we see an example of it. God's word does not change, but only in Christ can it finally be fully understood. That is what Paul is showing us all scripture must be read in light of what Christ has accomplished in the gospel now when Jesus ascended victoriously back to heaven he distributed gifts to men men and women actually the word is anthropi the fact that the church exists and each member of it has been given gifts do you know what that means it means that Christ has won the victory he's reigning right now and he's the Lord of all the spoils of this victory Christ came down to earth, he rose again, ascended back to the Father, filled all things, gave gifts to the church. Apparently there was some confusion over this in Ephesus, which is why you have those parenthetical verses in 8 to 10. He's just saying that he came down, he went back up. What specifically did Jesus give? Well, we'll get into that next week in 11 through 16. Beloved, here's the final matter. We lack nothing we need to be the church Christ has created and called us to be nothing. It's all right here in Christ, no matter who is here and who is it. It's right here. Just as each one of us lack nothing we need pertaining to life and godliness and hope and peace and forgiveness and salvation, so everybody is safe. No one in the church needs to panic. If we surrender to His word, all will be well. But Christ has already done our surrendering work for us. So just let us pray for the grace to trust Him. We need hearts that are broken by the gospel. We need humbled and pacified by God's amazing grace. Every one of us. We need patience. We need to learn how to bear with one another as God's own dear children so that as much as it depends on us, there's peace in the church. It's not that there's never a reason to fight. It's that there's never a time to fight for ourselves ever in the church. So, beloved... All we need is here for us, all of it, in Christ and His Word. So let us all receive Jesus in His Word today by His Spirit and walk the worthy walk. Christ is for us. He is not against us. He is for you. He is not against you, any of you.